around the world. Scientists and entrepreneurs are integrating abundant renewable energy to invent a better future that is healthier and more affordable. That's all good news for the planet. This is Entrepreneurial Journeys, a podcast about entrepreneurs providing solutions to social and environmental challenges across the world. My name is Emma Klopert, and over the next episodes, I'm going to take you on a global tour to meet these impact entrepreneurs from the cities of Central Africa to the coasts of Europe. How have their companies been built? Which problems are they trying to solve? And what are the honest personal stories behind them? In this first episode, I speak to Judith Joan Walker, the COO of African Clean Energy, a family-run business focused on access to clean energy for rural households in Africa and Asia. We had an inspiring conversation about how she went from the film industry to clean energy, what it's truly like to build a company with your family, and the persistent journey to fight for what you believe in, despite the hurdles and insecurities. I think I believe in it too much to ever have doubted that it would work out as an entrepreneur. Like you have to believe it's going to work because otherwise it's very demoralizing to work so hard for it to go nowhere. But before we dive into the world of African clean energy, let's first try to understand the bigger picture that the Walker family is contributing to, our transition to clean energy. Now we hear about it all the time, but why is it really so important? And what is the way forward? Every episode, I'll have a short phone call with an expert before the interview begins. And when talking about climate and energy, who better to call than... So I'm Jaime de Bourbon-Parma. I'm the climate envoy of the Netherlands. Exactly. The Dutch climate envoy. Now, the problem is that we based our economy, our entire world, on the back of fossil fuels, oil, gas and coal. And to mitigate climate change, we need to transition to renewable energy. Now, recently I heard the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, say that the transition is low-hanging fruit. The good news is that the lifeline is right in front of us. Transforming energy systems is low-hanging fruit. Sounds like quite a statement. I wondered what Jaime thought of that comment. Renewable energy is uh, indeed low-hanging fruit. If you look at the latest IPCC report, the climate scientists say that... um, We need to to move fast towards climate action, but the wind of opportunity is closing fast. But luckily, there are very uh, affordable uh, solutions out there for governments and the private sector that can make that change happen. Uh, You see the biggest impact on wind and solar, and it's incredibly affordable. It will um, actually save us money and move us towards a brighter climate future. We are learning to integrate large-scale renewables into our grids. We are gradually changing our transport systems and developing hydrogen as an energy carrier. Uh, and besides renewable energy, a lot of attention is, is, is put on efficiency and, and saving, uh, saving energy because a lot of energy loss around the world. And uh, on transport, we see a lot of opportunities on uh, not just on solar and wind, but on efficient uh, transport. So lo- using electricity in, uh, in transportation is, is low-hanging fruit as well. So all these together show us that there is a path forward, but that means that we need to put that 
first gear right now, um, today, and not in the next five or 10 years saying what tradition is difficult, expensive, uh, that report shows that that's not the case anymore. Okay, sounds doable on paper. So why is this so difficult and what are the biggest challenges? I find three types of uh, challenges, Emma. Uh, the first is cultural. Uh, you see in many countries, people and companies need to change the way they deal with, uh, with climate change and business practice and daily practice. The second thing is, is changing the skill set because uh, we need for the green economy different skills, but also within companies uh, and societies, we need to do things differently and we need to learn how to do it differently. And the third is system change. Um, what are the incentives keeping things as they are? Uh, what are the price structures? What are the risks associated with change? You know, all these different rules and, and procedures uh, need to be adjusted for to create the right, right incentives and, and structures for, for real change. So I would say these are the three elements that I look at uh, when I try to push for change. And is there an important difference to make between the developed and the developing world? Sure. The, the energy transition has a different face in different parts of the world. That's very important to, to realize. Um, you see the industrialized countries have the skills and the capital to, to make that change. Um, and there's no excuse for, for rich nations not to make very concrete steps in, in this direction. Uh, you see Europe leading the way. You see the U.S. Uh, having political struggles to, to follow. But then you've got many countries that, uh, that are feeling the effects of climate without having contributed to it and uh, and that's uh, and their need of an energy transition and i would argue that uh, all the systems are focused on fossil fuels um, but which and that seems the most likely path to development for for many developing nations but that uh, a lot of uh, renewables are available as well and that could be uh, as well a path towards the future and we should find ways how to help them walk that path Someone who is breaking the system of fossil fuels is Judith Joan Walker. Together with her family, she runs African Clean Energy. And this is quite a family. Her parents are leading the company in South Africa, her brother in Vietnam, and Judith and her other brother, Ruben, from Amsterdam. They recently got awarded Best Scoring B Corp in Europe. And together, they're changing the world with a focus on clean cooking thereby addressing a very large and also very underrepresented problem, that one third of our world is still cooking on open fire with detrimental consequences for the environment and health. But Judith's future wasn't always with the company. On the contrary, Judith had a dream of working in the film industry. So after growing up in Southeast Asia, she moved to Australia And then one day, her brother called upon her creative mind for a campaign to introduce this clean cooking stove they were developing. And from that moment onwards, everything changed. Okay, so you flew over to help him with a campaign, but now you're sitting across from me as the COO of the company. <laughs> so what happened in between? Why yeah. did you decide to stay? I, yeah, so I mean, I was in London and I was sort of doing bits and pieces of work and I like was a little lost myself and Ruben said, come over to Amsterdam, help me with this campaign. Um, and the more 
research I did, the more I got to know about it, the the problems that we're dealing with, like energy access in developing countries. And, you know, our focus was really Lesotho because my parents were living there at the time. They've since migrated back to the Netherlands. But uh, the more I learned about it and the more I got stuck into the subject matter, the more I, I don't know, felt like a responsibility to do something. I feel sometimes... It's easy to ignore big problems that you don't know anything about or you feel like you're not an expert in. And and now I was sort of helping develop this campaign and I felt responsible. And so um, it kind of went in little bits and pieces like, oh, I'll just help with that one thing. And well, maybe I'll just implement the data collection. And and then here we are like eight years later and we I'm are. the COO. <laughs> so you had a completely different background, but still you took on a leading role in this world you didn't know quite soon. I speak to a lot of people wanting to take a leap into a different direction at one point in their life, yet it's so easy to find reasons not to do something, right? To feel you're not good enough or not skilled enough or not experienced enough. What would you say to everyone who can identify with that? Look, if you're really passionate about something it doesn't really matter that you didn't study it or you didn't have a background in it already to be honest with all the resources that are available online and how prepared people in most industries are to sort of help you along like you don't know till you get started and you said this yourself like I came from the film industry and like would consider myself an expert in my field now Because you just learn it as you go and you grow. And I think there's this assumption that everybody else has it together and knows what to do and knows everything. Yeah. And nobody does. That is the biggest lie. Like, there's very few people that know everything they should and have it all together. Like, you can do whatever Definitely. you set your mind to. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I'm curious, let's get into the social mission a bit more. Uh, what planted the seed of starting this company? What What was the problem that you were trying to solve? The, the seed was really planted in Lesotho and, you know, it's called African clean energy. And sometimes people are like, but if your office is here in Amsterdam, like, why is it? <laughs> well, because we were in Lesotho and, uh, you know, my parents were living there. So I was there two, three times a year. Uh, and you drive through this absolutely stunning country. I mean, it's like the Switzerland of Africa. It has mountain ranges and it's just absolutely beautiful. And then you see these little traditional houses and then just smoke billowing out of the windows and you're kind of going is that normal that doesn't look like it would be good right and that's the 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 facts of how people have access to thermal energy so that's for cooking and heating the house the suit is very high in the mountains so it gets very cold in winter snow and ice kind of cold in winter uh, and people need thermal energy they need heat and and literally like a bonfire inside a small house and we uh that that sort of sparked this like it doesn't feel right surely there is technology that would resolve this and that's kind of where we started from is that there must be a better way so what is the solution well yeah you're you're gonna get a slightly biased answer from me because of how long solution? <laughs> my solution <laughs> well no but i want to point out like i don't think that there is one solution for all energy problems and energy as a sector is hugely broad it goes from lighting to hydro dams you know so like but specifically on clean cooking if you need to have enough energy to cook on and to heat and to boil water you need quite a lot of energy and so the thing is like at the moment um 
biomass is being used very inefficiently because if you just set a pile of wood on fire, it generates a lot of smoke. Smoke is just unburnt fuel. It's a lot of particulate matter. That's what causes the health issues. It's what causes a lot of the air pollution issues. Um, but it's also just very inefficient. And so when you're looking at how to use biomass efficiently, you need to make sure you're fully combusting it. And that's, that's sort of what we're focused on is how do you very efficiently use a resource that is locally available, that is available for a, an affordable price range for the end user and can build sort of sustainable uh, value chains in the markets where you operate. And that's why we think biomass is the, the best sort of flavor of energy access yeah. for this specific problem. So listening to that and keeping that in mind, then you created a product Uh, which is the core of uh, of your company? Could you tell us a bit more, like what's what kind of product do we um, do? I have to think about. So what's we it called. Let's start. With that. <laughs> so the the product that we manufacture and distribute is called the ACE One. So African Clean Energy One, right? The ACE One. Um, it is a multi fuel force draft cook stove, right? And we call it a household energy system because it also has. A solar panel and USB ports so you can power LED lights and charge a mobile phone and other small devices. So we see this as a more of a holistic energy system for people that currently don't have access to electricity, are still relying on things like charcoal or firewood, uh, and it is a tool that allows for their core energy needs. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, it's better to look at a picture of it, but it's basically a small cook stove that you can put any it's kind a disadvantage of pot of, of audio. We'll have yeah, drive it is. You'll have to use well your imagination, <laughs> exactly, which is always good. Um, okay, so using my imagination, I imagine start of the company, um, you have storages filled with these Ace ones at one point. Um, your potential customers are living living in rural areas with low connectivity. Um, what is the price of the product? So it's about $100 or 100 euros, depending on which market okay. the customs costs, logistics costs sort of varies so a little I'm bit. So I'm guessing that's not a small purchase for most of the families. Um, so all that taken together doesn't sound like the most easy ingredients for, for easy and large-scale distribution. Where do you start from there? It's a good point. It's always it's always been a challenge. We're dealing with a lot of customers in remote rural regions, and we we want to create energy access for that last mile as well. It's been a sort of core to our mission to make sure that anyone can access a product like this, and that has to do with where you are, but also the affordability and how do we make it affordable. Um, the store's full. I wish. I'll tell you what. One of the greatest challenges for us ha historically in these sort of 11 years or so of the company is sufficient working capital to buy enough product to meet the demand. Really? So, so yeah, always. And like the worst thing is that you have eager, excited teams ready to get out into the region and people are lining up to buy it and you don't have enough product. So historically, that has always been our challenge is sufficient supply for the demand. So the stores full sounds like a wonderful and great luxury and, and something, I mean, we just recently closed an investment round. So something we're really working on building up and I'm very optimistic for the future. But that, that's been a challenge. And yeah, then the challenge is you have 
people, I mean, it depends on each context, right? But in Lesotho, for example, a very mountainous region, people are dispersed, they're difficult to reach. So how do you create awareness for product? How do you make sure that, yeah, that they actually want it? And how do you then make that affordable to them? And we had to adopt almost the entire value chain into the company uh, and do a lot of it ourselves because I mean, the assumption in the beginning was if you make the best product available, then it'll sell itself, right? And that's not untrue, except that there aren't a lot of people who actually work in the distribution of these kinds of products. And and you're right, most of our customers, they do need to pay it off over a longer period of time. So we had to develop whole systems for dealing with loan management and making sure that we de-risk it for ourselves, de-risk it for the end user. You know, you don't want to create over-indebtedness either. So, you know, our loans don't have interest rates. It doesn't get more expensive the longer you wait. It's a tool for us to make this affordable and available to people. So, so customers are obviously a part of your income stream. Do you have any other income streams? It's a very good question and it took us a long time to also sort of finalize our business model on this. Uh, the reason historically, so historically it's primarily been the customer, right? And w the reason for that was we thought if we're going to keep the customer central and give them autonomy and let them uh, make their decisions and be able to have their demands too, like on the quality of the product and the, the level of service and such, you have to have them be the center of it. They have to pay for it themselves because otherwise they, they lose a lot of their power in, in the transaction, right? And obviously there are ways of Uh, keeping costs low. So, you know, getting, for example, uh, impact investment or grant funding in order to reach a scale where we could keep the cost lower for the end user. There have been those kinds of revenue streams. I mean, it's not revenue, it's once off, right? So it's once off, somebody helps you get to a different level. Now, what's very cool is that um, our product itself has a microprocessor that allows us to measure actual usage. And actual usage of the product is a very good proxy for carbon offset. So how much less somebody is using charcoal because they are now using this product, for example. Which means what we're doing at the moment is we're, um, we're able to generate carbon credits, voluntary carbon credits, based on actual usage that has already occurred and monetize that. So people are willing to pay for those offsets. But the really wonderful thing is it still keeps the customer totally central. Because, because if they don't it use it, when they're using exactly. The so if they're not using the product, then we're not generating that revenue either. And so we found a way to include external revenue from, I don't know, private sector, public sector. If anyone wants to buy some voluntary carbon credits, <laughs> you know where to be. But but still keep that customer absolutely central to the value chain, which is so important when it comes to actually generating the impact. Because it's not just health, it's environment, it's um, poverty, it's gender. The burden falls largely to women and girls. It's a waste of time to have to gather fuels, um, to spend you know hours trying to get fires going or keep them going. Are you profitable? <laughs> We've had profitable quarters. <laughs> But no, I will be honest, we spend most of our income on expansion and R&D and making sure that it's better and bigger and accessible to more people. So yeah, we're still reinvesting all of our money into that. So let's get this right, because there is something um, I don't understand. 
one third of people on this entire planet are still cooking on open fire. Besides health, it's also detrimental to the environment. And then, as you're saying, there's also a good, a strong business case to be made as well. Why is this problem still moving forwards so slowly? Why are so many people still unaware of it? Um, look, it is a, it's a challenging problem. It's a large-scale problem. Historically, the business model has been difficult. As I say, we also struggled when just focusing on hardware. We've now found a model. I think the price of the technology needed to actually make this level of improvement uh, has only recently sort of come into the space of affordability, so solar and batteries. Now, with this trend of rising prices of voluntary carbon offsets and things, I think we can invest in this very viably in a commercial sense. But it was historically sort of relegated to the development sector who NGOs. also has to deal. Yeah, and they are also dealing with water and education and all these other things. And I think to a certain extent, because there was this sort of lack of investment and a lack of proven business models, people sort of were like, mm, no, too risky, not going to touch that. Mm -hmm. We sort of powered through all that and are, you know, coming out the other end with a couple of years head start on it. I think anyone else, like we're really pioneering uh, using digital technology in this space to make it very scalable. But I think that's, that's where the challenge lay. I think it, um, there was too much focus on not very good technology. I, I just think there haven't been enough good examples of people achieving significant impact or sort of commercial scalability. And that's left it in this like, ooh, too hard, not going to touch that. But you're here to change that. It's certainly the mission to change that. But luckily, I don't have to do that by myself. I have a really awesome team that helps me in uh, implementing, especially in the markets themselves. It's important that we have a great team. Because it also stood out to me in our last conversation that you spoke very passionate about the people uh, you're working with. So we've contacted some of your team members and I think it would be um, it would be nice to bring their voices into our conversation too. Let's have a listen. Hi, my name is Retabile Mafura and I'm the country director of African Clean Energy Lesotho. What motivates me to work for African Clean Energy? <laughs> well, let's see. The financial health and lifestyle impacts that our product has on the people's lives, both of urban and rural areas of Lesotho, the company culture, inclusion of differently abled people, diversity, and most of all, the youth and, and women empowerment. You see why I hire these women in positions of leadership? Because they're whole sort of being is to help pull others up. That's the kind of company that we want to be. My name is Tyro Dutu and I'm the East African Regional Director and currently based in Bale, Uganda. When I was young, I dreamt of being a model. Apart from that, I also loved uh, media jobs. I loved being in front of the camera and stuff like that. And um, if my younger self would see me now, I am very sure that she will be proud of who I've become because I have learned to be a leader. I have learned to work with teams. And even with the heart of help that I have, 
I am, I am still able to extend this help to other individuals, other people around my community. What does it do uh, to you listening to this? Oh, I'm just so proud. It's funny to hear Tyra say that she wanted to be a model, but I think she's a role model. Mm. And I see that. I, th I think it's really incredible to see her grow in our company. And I mean, you can hear why she's so incredible. She's just, um, she's an inspiration to her whole team. That's what they always tell me. Everybody follows her as the leader because she knows what she's talking about and she shares the vision and she's been doing this since 2017 and from seven people in one tiny little office to the company it's become now. The company it has become now. But Rome wasn't built in a day. We'll soon hear all about the most difficult moments and head over to the big vision for the future of the company. But first, I'd like to know how Judith found her own voice in a family-run business and what leading a company with your family is truly like. When you entered the company, you were relatively young. I think it's, how old were you? I think 24. 24. Okay, so that's a phase in your life where you're really developing yourself and find out what you're passionate about. Was there also room within the company to find your own voice and pursue it? Very much so. And I'm very grateful for that. I mean, I sort of joined my my big brother, you know, and he was he's nearly seven years older than I and had this whole very cool career in like mobile tech behind him and this was his third business uh, you know like he had all this experience and still he gave me a lot of room to have a voice about what I thought was important and for a lot of that it was you know the social aspects outside of the the environmental I mean he's an mm -hmm. environmental engineer so this is like his big dream to be able to do something that is as impactful as this, as I think anybody who's an environmental engineer like dreams of something that has this much impact and that you can make this big a change with. But he also realized he couldn't do it all alone. And so he is quite an incredible leader in the sense that he does give people the room to have their voice and opinion on the things that matter the most to them. And I think we've also really built a team up in that way where, you know, any one person cannot do, know, or care about everything. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to put a team together so that we would cover everything with a really kind of diverse team that does do, know, and care about everything. Yeah. And so, yeah, very grateful that I was allowed really from the very beginning to assert myself and my opinion and that he has no ego really when it comes to that I'm curious because that's you speaking about him as a leader what do you think he'd say about you as a leader <laughs> you might have to ask him that um that's that's a strange thing to add like I the funny thing is I I often hear from other people that he's said all these lovely things about me or that he's so impressed with whatever one one or other element Um, but it's this like sibling thing where you say really nice things about each other behind each other's back, but yeah. like not, Never to, the <laughs> not to their face. <laughs> I will say in the last couple of years, we've also gotten better at like very explicitly being like, I appreciate you. That was really great. Thanks for working on that because it's so important that you 
validate each other and the work that you're doing because it can be super hard sometimes. Like what we do is really challenging. And if you don't have a cheerleader, like it's hard. And I can also imagine that you you probably have conflicting opinions or visions about certain things, right? And um, does it take a lot of effort to convince your your family members um, of the direction you want to head in? The short answer there is no, because we have a lot of trust in each other. And I think um, the interesting thing is because... So we're like sort of morally, ethically very aligned. Like we have the same big grand vision, right? But on all the details, like we have very different interests and we're really good at different things. And this is, we kind of get this question like, oh, wow, all three of the kids, like both your brothers are in the business, like nepotism. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We actually, that kind of like happened accidentally. We just happen to be good at very different things. And it's very complimentary And that still doesn't cover everything. So we had to hire a whole bunch of other people that are much smarter than us and other things. But but um, like what we find really cool, like we found our place within the company in things that we love doing. So let's talk a bit about the way forward. Um, do you remember the first moment you really thought, okay, we're onto something. This is going to be big. I think there's so, it's progressive. It's not one moment and then it's all clear and it all it's all easy and, and whatever. But I think um, I think it, it probably was like a couple of years ago where we were looking at being able to accurately measure our, our impact. And like we hadn't quite settled on, you know, was that going to be various different externalities? Now we're very much tying it to carbon offsetting because we feel the the market's right for that. It, it feels really viable and scalable right now. But I think the moment where we were like, that's how we keep the customer central, but still make sure that this is all affordable and scalable, mm -hmm. for me was a massive aha moment. Because to be honest, like with just the hardware model, where we're just constantly facing limitations because of stock, limitations because of logistics. Like it felt like a fight all the time. And it felt like we were doing it because it was really important and it should be done, but that it was going to stay this massive fight all the time. Now with the model that we have where we're able to do everything like mission, vision, social good that we plan to do, but still make that very commercially scalable, For me, that opens all the doors because finally we're going to be able to get the investment and the sort of buy-in from people who don't care. And like, the, don't get me wrong, our investors are incredible and they care a lot about what we do. They're very much buying into the impact and the the vision of it. But if we forever in scale and like in the future have to rely on people to care about something, that's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, And I think... What I enjoy about being this kind of mission-driven company is that if we can also make it a really viable company, I, I, it doesn't matter if people care or not. We can still have that impact. We can still make it happen. We can still make it scalable. Yeah. So for your so with this model, you really notice, okay, now we're onto something. This is working. And then as a result, you also see that external figures and investors and stuff there, that they're also um, increasing. 
Yeah, they're finally paying attention because they see the viability and the scalability Is of it. Is that how it feels? Did you did you really feel that people weren't paying attention in the first years? Yeah. Yeah, it felt so um frustrating and kind of isolated to be doing the work that we were doing because we saw the long-term vision of it and we were sort of prepared to put blood, sweat and tears into making that happen, but it felt and you know, we've had we, We've had people who have sort of bought into the vision and, and helped and help us grow to the next level. Don't get me wrong. It's not that there was nothing, but everything kind of felt like a fight. And now it feels like the doors are starting to open because people have realized, one, how important this is. It's getting more sort of global attention also in policy and government. But, but yeah, it finally feels like, oh, we're now like ahead of the curve and people are excited about what we're doing. And it's not going to be this battle forever. Yeah. That's so nice. It's taking off. Yeah. That's good. Um, but I'm sure like, okay, you're you're in that phase now, but there are, as you said, there were also struggles and difficult moments. Do you remember a specific moment or period um, in building the company that you thought, okay, this is going all wrong. This is not going to work out. I think I believe in it too much to ever have doubted that it would work out. So in that sense, you you have to. I mean, you have to as as an entrepreneur. Like you ha have to believe it's going to work because otherwise it's very demoralizing to work so hard for it to go nowhere. But we've definitely had, you know, we've definitely had hurdles. Um, COVID really wasn't pleasant. I mean, having, we have, you know, we had at the time something like nearly 250 employees sitting at home how do you keep people motivated and everyone's scared and like that, that sucked. So that wasn't fun at all. Um, and what does that do to you personally? How do you deal with that? I, it's, it's not really like a marketing spiel for me to see this company as like one big family. I mean, it helps that it's also a lot of my family, but it is very difficult to feel responsibility for like a big group of people that are all working on something together and to see them have a hard time and this is also a little bit of the nature of like the countries that we work in is that you know in in my time at A's like Lesotho had a terrible drought um, there were things like like teachers weren't paid for like two years there were all sorts of these like major issues that wipe out a huge subsection of your customer base really affects them negatively, uh, which makes it really hard and demotivating for your your sales staff. And people work super, super hard, but it's in difficult conditions. And so it doesn't always work out. And I feel responsible for them to still feel validated and seen and supported. And that's that's hard to do across so many different countries and with so many different people. I'd like to mention, of course, that you um, recently received B Corp accreditation. Um, or actually, I should say, the highest scoring B Corp accreditation in Europe, and I think second highest in the world. And on top of that, you and your team also just sealed an investment round of three and a half million. If you'd have to choose between those two things... <laughs> Which one would be more important to you? It's a very interesting question. I'm very proud of our B Corp status. I also think that it helped in attaining the three and a half million. But 
the money to do the things that you want to do is better than acknowledgement that you're doing it. So for me, even if I had to do this in a vacuum and no one ever knew that I was involved and whatever, I did, that wouldn't bother me so much as long as we were actually doing, doing the it. work because I think that's the really important. We're very results focused. It's part of the reason that we're able to measure all of our results so accurately is because I don't want to work this hard and have it not have that impact, right? So um, – whether it was recognized or not, we would be doing this. So I'd take the money just so that we could keep doing it and growing and, you know, paying people well and things like that. It was super important for a company. What are we going to see from ACE in the, in the coming years? Where's your focus? So a lot of our focus is on sort of the digital tech. So our sort of core goal at the moment is this virtuous cycle where we're able to... Um, essentially turn our customers into suppliers of carbon offsets to invest that funding into these sustainable fuel supply chains. So we very much want to look at the type of digital technology that's used for chauffeurs and getting your groceries delivered, but apply that to energy access in developing countries. So we're really focused now on, yeah, I guess moving into like the climate fintech space as opposed to just We make a product and sell it. So, And how many households do you want to reach with that? All of them. No. Um, <laughs> I don't know. A third of the world needs this, right? So there's people who are like, what's your market size? And I'm like, I don't know, like a billion plus in the markets that we're already present in. I um, uh, <laughs> uh, Look, I'd like to really get to national coverage in the countries that we're in now, in Lesotho, Uganda, Kenya, and Cambodia. Um, and likely, and Tyra sort of alluded to this as well, but expand out into some of the other countries in East Africa, maybe head to Ghana. Um, there are so many people who desperately need this product for their livelihood, for their, you know, quality of life. Um, and then on top of that, I the, the urgency from a global level, like, I don't know if people get how bad the problem is and how much worse it's going to get, you know, with population growth and the reliance on on the resources that are dwindling fast. Sounds like everyone <laughs> enough to do. Yeah, we're not going to run out of it's. <laughs> well, I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us the next episode for another inspiring entrepreneurial journey, or maybe even start or continue your own. This podcast is powered by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands and the Netherlands Enterprise Agency. For more information about how they can help you propel your business forward, please visit rvo.nl.